Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. I'm Kay. On this podcast, we interviewed many Asian boss women from various industries, but most of them have been entrepreneurs working with their own companies, or they experienced working in corporate. It was in the past and not in the time that we talked to them. Helen, Jen, and myself have shared our past experiences working at corporations, but it's been about two years now that any of us have been active in the corporate workforce, and we're curious to connect more with those who are. Which is why we're so excited to have Kay Sue with us today. Kay is the head of creative and design partnerships marketing at Facebook, now known as Meta. Prior to Meta, she was part of the leadership team at Instagram as the global director of Instagram Creative Shop. She is an award-winning strategic marketer with extensive experience working both in-house at companies and at leading advertising shops like Huge and LBI. Kay is also a third culture kid, having grown up in Canada, Hong Kong, and the U.S. Welcome to the Asian Boss Girl Podcast, Kay! Yay! Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thank you, only because you know you said it with so much um, enthusiasm. I never hear my name being said with so much enthusiasm. I'm like, yes, whoever this person is. Oh, it's about me. <laughs> Thank you. Heck yeah. Well, Kay, we're so excited to have you on with us today. We were introduced to you by our friend Matt Ogawa. And we chatted a bit for, I think we chatted like a few months ago, and we learned so much about you. Your life is extremely interesting, including your career switches, entrepreneur ventures. You lived in different countries, and you know, being an Asian woman in leadership at a large company, that is a lot. And we just want to dive into all of that. Before we do, we'd love if you could share with our listeners a little bit about your childhood. Do you mind sharing with us, you know, where did you grow up, and what was your family dynamic like, and what was Young K like? Oh my God, so many questions. I could talk about myself for ages because I've gone through therapy in the last year. So I could, all I could talk about is my childhood. Um, yes. But I was born and raised in Toronto, um, Ontario mm. in Canada. So Canadian, born and born. My parents moved uh, to Toronto in the late 70s, right before I was born from Hong Kong. So originally they're from Hong Kong. My grandparents moved shortly um, to Toronto thereafter. So we had a really tight family. Like our family is very small. But I grew up um, in a very immigrant neighborhood. Um, I loved it. Like, I loved it. It's this um, little borough called Scarborough. 
And mm. I feel like I had such a different upbringing from other people because everybody else was in the same situation as me. As in all of their parents, even if they were white, they were Portuguese or they were Greek or they were Lebanese um, or Italian. Um, there was a lot of Jamaican kids as well. And so all of us had immigrant parents and it was such a lovely way to grow up. Um, I went to Catholic school, but in Canada around that time, um, I think the government had decided that it was uh, unconstitutional to, you know, limit, I think, schools based on religion. And so there was a lot of different religions there as well. So growing up, I just felt like, you know, we had Jamaican patties for lunch for mm -hmm. when we were raising money for the mm -hmm. school. We also had pizza. But everybody's lunches were often very, very different as well. So there was, you know, when I came to the United States and I, you know, of course, when I watched a lot of TV, watched a lot of American TV growing up, I wouldn't understand why, you know, there would be shows about people's um, food being made fun of just because mm -hmm. everybody had such different lunches at school. So that was always part of my growing up. And now that I live here and um, I think I have the privilege of living here, I definitely see much more racial dynamics than um, I was aware of growing up. So I'm sure they were there, but I definitely wasn't aware of it. And now when I look back on my childhood, I really see it as a extremely uh, privileged childhood to be able to be such a part of a real like mosaic. And that is like, you know, without getting so proudly Canadian, but we always say Canada is a mosaic and not a melting pot because we don't expect everybody to melt into one, but it's like little pieces of glass. Everybody has their own culture, their language, their way of doing things, their approach. And we all bring it together to make this like beautiful, like country that we have Canada. Um, so... That's part of my upbringing. Um, I, you know, the middle child of three daughters. Um, we are the only children really in both sides of the family. So I definitely have middle child syndrome where now I'm adult. I'm like, it's about me now, guys. <laughs> this is my yeah. time to shine. I get the chicken leg, okay? Because there's only two chicken legs and you always have to give it to the older one because they're older and the younger one because they're younger. I'm like, no, no, no. Now, when I go to like barbecue restaurants, I'm like, I would like two chicken legs. And the waiter <laughs> will always say, oh my God, but that's $1.50 each. And I'll be like, I can afford it now. I'm getting two chicken legs and it's all just for me. <laughs> so I would basically say that was my upbringing. Probably the last thing I'll say about this, um, which again, I, I feel like I probably learned more about myself by living here, mm. is that my mom was not a tiger mom. So I also didn't quite understand that. Um, and I don't know if, again, I was very lucky that I, I did have a lot of Chinese um, friends as well, both from mainland China, Taiwanese, and um, from Hong Kong as well. And none, nobody really had a tiger mom. So it was kind of a stereotype that I don't think I had a lot of exposure to. Um, having said that, coming here and hearing that stereotype, it's really funny to reflect on my own mother's style of parenting, um, which is... I would characterize it as very loose, very absent-minded, and very, how, I don't even know how I would say it. I would not say negligent, if my mom is listening, but let's just say that, you know, she was very, you know, just easy on us in many ways. Mm. Um, you know, she never really expected us to have high grades. If we did it, great. Um, she doesn't remember what degree I got. I still ask her, I'm like, what degree did I get? She goes, I don't know. I know it's like a bachelor in something. Um, she just wanted us to work really hard. Um, and she really thought it's like, it sounds wrong, but being normal mm. was a good thing. Like mm. trying to aspire to too much would bring too much pain. 
So I think when I reflect so much on like how I was brought up through my parents' personal parenting style and also just like growing up in um, Canada, it's really shaped uh, partially the tenacity that I have, but also probably a lot of like um, points of view that I have living now here in the United States and working in corporate America. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your background. Like, I love that you, I love the, the, the childhood you had is I think it sounds really, this sounds, it sounds beautiful because I feel like I, I, I didn't, I think I also grew up in a very, I would say a very diverse city. Like the concept of like my food made, being made fun of was something I didn't really understand until I got older and watched like a lot of shows or Asian, Asian American media storytelling. I was like, Oh, I was made fun of as a kid for being Asian or my food. And I was like, Oh, like, no, we loved every food, like, in my high school, too. So I had that similar, I guess, like, loss of innocence when I got older. I didn't know that was a thing that actually people went through. Um, so I, I find it interesting that you also went through the same thing. But, yeah, I also think your mom, like, being kind of, um, I would say a little bit more uh, free-spirited, I guess. Would, that, would you describe your mom a little bit? I would say more like a space cadet. So I don't even think it was, like, she had a point of view. She just has very bad memory. Again, if my mom ever listens to it, I'm sorry, but she knows it's true. Mm. Um, we spend every Sunday looking for her wallet always. So she was just kind of um, spacey, if you will. So it wasn't even purposeful that she didn't keep, you know, a, a tight fist um, or like she didn't really ball and chain us too much. But it was really because I think she had three children. Mm. You know, we came from very working class family. Uh, things were always tight and very hard and there was always a lot of pressure. So I don't think really minding us in the, in a tiger mom mm. way um was really what would have worked for her um and she was like that with all three of us i think she just really wanted us to have you know good work ethic yeah. and values and as long as we tried really hard i think she was happy but i would not say that is purposeful mm-hmm. freedom um and in a lot of ways too when i reflect back even in my um uh, high school years we never had a curfew but she was smart because we never had a curfew and we never abused it because everybody else had a curfew. Mm. And back then, oh, so was a, yeah. yeah, no such thing as the internet. So your friends are your friends at your school. And if they, they had a curfew, you had no one to go out with because like, who are you meeting? You know? So mm. my mom was very smart in the way that we felt like we had a lot of freedom, but actually possibly because the way we were raised and, you know, we're, we're rule followers. I would say me and my sisters, I don't think we really abused it too much as well. Yeah. Dang. Your mom's, yeah. That's really smart. Yeah. Yeah, she didn't know. She didn't know about curfews. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, this person has to be back by eight. She's like, oh, oh, that's a thing? Like, yeah, it's a thing. Again, you know, she's just happy. She always says that she's so proud none of us are drug addicts. So I do feel like, in her mind, the bar is quite low. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you also, um, I know you immigrated, uh, your family immigrated from Hong Kong, but you also spent periods of your life in Hong Kong Can you tell us how you, like, I guess, went back to your parents' motherland and how do you think that has shaped you as a person? I I worked in politics up until I was 21 to Mm -hmm. 23. And then I worked for my dad for a while. I was a little bit lost because I really didn't know how to get out of politics and then get into, like, I guess, back then I would call it the private sector. Um, And I really didn't know how to do it because I didn't have any experience working for a company um, or, you know, um, like a business in any sort of sense. So I was a little bit lost. I worked for my dad. Uh, my dad and my mom really wanted to go back and retire to Hong Kong. So I guess they wanted to reverse their immigration. Um, so they went there. A lot of my friends at the time when I moved to Hong Kong, it was really when I think a lot of my friends, you know, Canadian-born Chinese folks, 
were going back because there wasn't as much economic opportunity in Toronto. Like Canada's only about like 33 million folks. And there's not a lot of, even though there are like obviously the big business presence there, there's not a lot of headquarters. So I think um, job mobility and job prospects was particularly hard in the early uh, 2000s. So I moved back after they moved back thinking, great soft landing. All my friends were moving there. It was super easy. They were all finding international jobs in banking or in fashion. And it seemed very exciting. And, you know, your Chinese didn't have to be super good to make it um, there. And my parents were moving there. So I was like, great, I have a place to stay because I'm definitely a moocher still to this day. (laughs) Um, So I was like, great, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to go there um, and kind of find myself a little bit. And that's where my two best friends from growing up, they all said move there. So obviously that was a huge like peer uh, impetus for me to go. Uh, Me and one of my best friends, Keiko, uh, started a business. Well, she started one and I joined her after uh, selling trims. So we sold all the things like YZZ, YKK zippers, like lace trims, beads and all this good stuff. Um, We bought them and sold them um, at a profit and exchanged them Mm -hmm. with really big manufacturers and retailers here in the United States. So we made a really good profit and I did that kind of in the meantime as I was trying to figure stuff out. Um, But I loved Hong Kong. I really feel like even though possibly a lot of my identity is baked and my values are baked in being Canadian and probably that immigrant life, I think my adulthood started in Hong Kong, where it was the first big city I lived in. Um, I experienced so many different kinds of people. Um, I met people from all over the world just because of what Hong Kong was at that particular time and place 20 years ago. I really feel like I discovered myself and found that I wanted to be, you know, a planner. And that's what ultimately led me to uh, New York. But it was a very formative experience, as in it's like when I look back in my life, I think that four to five years in Hong Kong mm-hmm. has been probably one of the most influential in how I approach things, who I am, uh, the kind of values I have, the person I want to be. I think all of that like came to life when I was living my life there. Um, and it's again, it's one of my favorite cities in the world and probably the only place I would live besides New York yeah. in, in adult life other than like Tuscany. Like those are, that's the only other city I think that I'd, I'd love to live in long term. Yeah. I had a quick question because I, I find living in a different country, such in Asia and working in like, let's say, I'm going to say maybe in your 20s. I, I just find it really interesting because it's like a, it's a desire I really have because it just feels like you just learn a lot about yourself, just removing yourself from your like, like from for me, it's the U.S. So when you said it shaped you and like it it put in the values that you wanted to pursue, like was there an experience that really like kind of like this moment was a moment that I'm like, this is a direction of case or this is the like a prime, like a pivotal moment in your life within your career in Hong Kong that really shaped or like, I guess, led you to where you are. Yeah, it was actually by chance through meeting someone. So I had a group of friends there again. Everybody had gone back. So they were either from California, L.A., um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of ABCs that had gone back um, to Hong Kong. Again, that was a period where Hong Kong was really thriving economically and there's a lot of job prospects. Um, like before, really, I think the center of gravity really moved to, you know, Shanghai shortly after. Mm. Um, but I met someone who was there and then had moved back to New York and came back to visit Hong Kong. And he was a planner in an agency. And I was very lost. Like, sure, I was helping... My best friend with our business, we were thinking about doing a t-shirt shop and we're starting that prospect. But I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do long term. And I was kind of lost. I was like, I did politics. I worked for my dad. You know, I went to school to learn Putonghua or Mandarin, depending on where you orient. Um, And 
I was, I was just completely lost about what to do. And so this guy who was a brand planner worked at McCann Erickson in New York. His name's Ian Chi. I should actually thank him very much. Came back to Hong Kong uh, during the holidays and talked about his job and what he was doing for McDonald's and repositioning the brand in China. And I found, I was like, holy shit, that's a job, right? Mm -hmm. To think about, to just do problem solving. It's a very creative discipline with a lot of rigor around it as well. And I have a BA in economics, so a lot of the rigor around understanding market, understanding business challenges, uh, but at the same time applying it creatively, not necessarily in the output, but in the thinking of it was really interesting. So I think that was what made me decide to actually do my master's in advertising and PR um, after. So I did an exchange program with Cal State Fullerton where all the teachers, the professors flew and they did half a semester there. So I earned my master's um, from Cal State Fullerton in Hong Kong. But it was really through, I remember this, a stroll in a beautiful mall, looking at very expensive things I couldn't afford. And he's talking about his job. And I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, like this is the culmination of everything I want to do. And if I want to do it, what do I have to do? I thought I thought I was going to school. And then I thought I was moving to New York, which was the center of advertising. So that was it. But I know you talked about like career. The other pivotal moment was understanding how proud I was of being Chinese. Mm-hmm. I was always very proud, you know, growing up in Toronto. There's a lot of, you know, um, Chinese Asian diaspora in Toronto. So there was no lack of pride, but I don't think I had the sharpness to my pride. Like I liked it and it was like mm-hmm. cool. And I, I thought Hong Kong cinema and music was very cool. It was very cool in Toronto. God, I sound so old by even using the word cool. But it was a huge thing. But living in Hong Kong, I, I realized it really, really defined the type of pride I had in being from Hong Kong and understanding the trials and tribulations of Chinese people in Hong Kong, the history mm-hmm. of war, um, understanding my dad was born in Macau, you know, run away mm-hmm. um, during wartime. Uh, really understanding Hong Kong cuisine um, has been also like a big source of pride for me. And so I think right there, it went from being very proud that I was, you know, Chinese and Canadian Chinese, all the way to very, again, more sharply defined, that I was very proud um, that my parents were for Hong, from Hong Kong and I had such a special experience there. And now it's something that, you know, now that I have a daughter, I like pray she understands Cantonese, you know, because it's mm-hmm. kind of a dying dialect. Pray that, you know, some of my friends who are chefs there can keep the Hong Kong cuisine alive because it's keeping our history and our very specific culture alive as well. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Guys, May Sap, May, sorry, not May Sap, but May from Hong Kong Bao. She's the girl. She's like nominated for every like best chef ever. Mm. But May Chow is the one. Yeah. She's the one who's keeping Hong Kong cuisine alive. She's like amazing amongst all of her peers. There's a lot of them, but she is one person. I would like to say that she's really very, very extremely inspirational, like proudly LGBTQIA from New York originally moved there and is again, very, very dedicated, dedicated to keeping um, Hong Kong cuisine and the culture and Cantonese cuisine alive. And when I look at her, I'm like, she's doing so much advocacy for like the community there, but also for women and our food. And again, she's just someone that I'm always like, everybody needs to know her. Yeah. She's amazing. I can't believe she's not like a David Chang here, which I'm always begging her, please just come here. You'll be a star. You'll be a star here. <laughs> um, and you'll help again, like, you know, share, I think everything that I love about our culture mm-hmm. and share about, you know, share a lot of the history of pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a lot of pain there right now too but share a lot of the pain and trials and tribulations of Hong Kong yeah. and the extreme oppression and colonialism 
than actually a lot of, you know, people have. And when I think about my parents, I think they have a lot of inter, intergenerational trauma, even from, I think, the uh, being from Hong mm-hmm. Kong and yeah. seeing how, you know, oppressed actually people were under colonial rule although we like to romanticize it Mm. and say that it's always been great because certainly there's been great things that came out of it but it's also been I think very challenging for the people who actually lived Mm. um, there and weren't allowed to govern weren't allowed to live in specific places you know and I think they still feel very much the effects of it today Yeah. yeah Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for sharing your story, Kay. Um, One of the things that I really was drawn to you about was all of these career transitions that you made and, you know, in line with moving to different cities. And um, I also, you know, had a period in my life where I uh, I discovered planning from a friend who was actually a graphic designer. And I went to like a boot camp and went to New York and kind of tried to do all that. I ended up not really loving New York coming from SoCal as a <laughs> spoiled with the weather or whatnot, but um, I really relate to your story as someone who's kind of pushed themselves um, out of curiosity and out of like self-development, self-growth to try, you know, and at times maybe just kind of being a little lost and, and feeling like you wanted to find and learn different things within your career and within uh, different cities. Um, is fascinating to hear your perspective of going to Hong Kong. I never went international, but um, now as we kind of, you know, Mel has shared that she's really curious about going back to Taiwan, which is where her family's from. And I can hear from your story how much that can push an individual and how much that can also ground you in really figuring out who you are and your history, learning more about your family. So uh, I, I'm just like really engaged by your story. Thank you. 
Yeah, and particularly within the career sector, um, you know, a lot of our our listeners write in and ask about career transitioning. A lot of our culture kind of pushes this idea of, you know, you become like one of three or four different professions, doctor, lawyer, whatever that might be, engineer. And um, the idea of going into not only creative, but then shifting around is is not a lot of, we don't have a lot of examples of people mm-hmm. who've done that. And so your story is incredible to me because you went from political science then into advertising, and then um, now you're in the, you know, in the technology space. Um, Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your career path? And when you made the changes, what brought each of them about, you kind of shared a little bit about the planning of going into advertising, but, um, you know, maybe after that, how did you get from them planning advertising into technology? Yeah, definitely. And I don't know if it's going to be a satisfying answer, but I can lay out every job and then I'll explain probably how I got to each. Um, I started out again working for a municipal councillor. So just like, you know, someone that works for city government. She was an elected official. She ended up running for federal politics um, while I was working for her. So it was a part-time job during university. And my parents were very passionate because they had met Adrian Clarkson, who's uh, the then Governor General of Canada, who is the state head figure for um, the Queen. It's just like very ceremonial. They had met her, she was an Asian woman, and she had said to them, hey, it's really important to get your daughters involved in politics because right now the political system is not necessarily representative, right? And you should definitely get your daughter um, into politics. My dad, surprisingly, right? Because, you know, I would say he's more atypical Chinese, a little bit more apathetic towards um, uh, local politics, if you will, really took that to heart and found me a volunteer position with a municipal counselor that became a part-time job, that became a full-time job. And when she ran for federal politics, I went with her. After that, I went to work for my dad because I didn't know what I was doing. After that, moved to Hong Kong, you know, owned a part of a small business with my um, best friend. Um, again, she really owned it and I really helped her, but we were trying to push into something else. Then I moved here, started out at a very small agency, um, MKTG, um, as first an admin assistant. And then with the intention, I was always very clear I wanted to be a planner. They moved me so I can get more uh, training through a planner called Gail Brooks. I really got to holler at Gail Brooks. She taught me everything I, I know. Um, and then again, I moved on to other agencies from the, there on end. And then from the agency world, I did freelance after a while. Um, it was really luck that I got into Facebook. I had a friend, Christy Liu, another person I like, big shout out. I'd worked with her in my very first agency. We hired her as a contract worker uh, because we couldn't do all the planning work. And this is when I was a planner. She asked me for advice and said like, hey, I have two really big gigs, Facebook or, you know, going back to this agency and running digital. I was like, you can always go back to an agency. You can't always get into tech. And this is a once in a lifetime chance. This is by the way, 10 years ago. So it seemed very once in a lifetime. Um, So she took the job and she referred me. um, And I made it through the rounds of interviews and the hacks, which back then they were like 20. So it was a pretty rigorous process. Um, So that's how I got into Creative Shop. And then Instagram, we're starting to monetize. I got into Instagram shortly after. And then, you know, now I've moved on to head creative uh, for partnerships marketing. But I will say, like the changes and the shifts through all of that, Again, I'm going to know this is very unsatisfactory. We're all because opportunities were given to mm. me. Like, I really think that it was chance. Obviously, obviously, I can do the work. Obviously, hopefully, I do my job well. Um, but a lot of people also have that skill set. 
you know, a lot of people have that skill set, they may not have the support and the opportunity may have not opened up for them. Those are the two things that are out of my hand. The other thing that's more within everybody's control is asking for opportunity. I always was very much like, I want to do this. Can you help me? So I would always ask for help in some shape or form. And obviously as I've gotten older, it's been more direct, but in the past, I've always been very clear about needing help and not shy about asking for help. And I think that's been a lesson that I've learned over time, even in terms of promotion mm-hmm. um, and advocating for myself in a big company. I've learned that asking is like maybe one third of it. Yeah. But again, the other two variables is like, I found people who were really willing to mentor me, who saw promise in me, who helped make that opportunity for me. And I'm very, very aware of that now because I try to do that for other people in big and small ways is because I know that I was lucky and it's all through chance. Mm. Um, The only thing I would say, the other thing also within control besides asking and looking, soliciting opportunities is that I was very open um, minded as well. Like I, there is never a job too small, even to this day that I will not do. And I think it's because of that, that it's actually helped me meet people. It's, um, helped me understand how things should work in my opinion, from the biggest picture thinking to all the way tactical. Um, and I think that that attitude is something that you can control as in like, I never, you know, I had a master's degree when I agreed to be an admin assistant. I was not too big for that job. But now, guess what? I know how to balance mm. expense sheet. Right. You learn at all. Something. Even to this day, someone had like recently said to me like, oh, it's very interesting your job. Like sometimes you'll be soliciting like email addresses, you know, for, <laughs> for spreadsheets, invite people to a big event. And sometimes you'll be like, you know, doing uh, a big talk on a stage. I'm like, yeah, man, you cannot be too good for any mm-hmm. job. Like that is not a good attitude. You won't meet people. You won't learn things that you should know to be better. And it's all about like, not thinking nothing is too good for me to do. And I think that's that's been very helpful in meeting people and having people take chances on me as well. So long story short, there was no purposeful move. I was very lucky. Mm-hmm. I think some people probably have to do more purposeful moves. Like if you clearly want to be car engineer, you obviously have to go to school and plan mm-hmm. for it, right? Like there's certain things you have to. But I think in a lot of cases, because my, my stuff is mostly soft skills, um, or soft science, which baked in soft science, I think I was very, I, I cannot understate the fact that people helped me and that I had a, luck, a lot of luck and opportunity. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm like nodding my head off because as someone who also kind of, you know, career transition and planning, and then I did UX later where, yeah, the skill set is, it comes, or a lot of people that go into those fields are, have, have a very diverse background. And I think coming from, I came from like a corporate setting and that dynamic that you talk about of A, being open-minded, eating your ego and just taking any job and being, no task is too mm. small for you. But then also on the other hand, no task is too big for you. And to have the confidence to kind of go for that. Um, as a woman and as an Asian individual, I think oftentimes I struggled with balancing both of those. So thank you for articulating that so well and exemplifying that in your in, in the work that you've done. Um, now that you're at Meta, uh, do you think that this is a place where you're going to be for a long time? So we hear, we see in your past, you, know, you went from poli side to advertising to creative and tech. Is this kind of where you think that you'll land long-term? Or are you kind of like, maybe something different could come up? I think based on even just our last conversation, I'm probably open for anything and everything. I think there's a lot of opportunity, obviously, at Meta, and they're doing really interesting things. Um, so I definitely see that. When I think about my longer-term path, 
I always will love creative and storytelling mm-hmm. and the output of it. But what I really love, what I understand about being in um, tech is the way we tell stories is also very important to me. Because I think like for some people telling the story is enough. But for me, it's like using technology um, and using products um, to create experiences. I know this sounds like bullshit, but it's really true. I'm really very passionate about it. And that's why I think the creative strategy discipline is one that's growing very quickly. I think I would even say 10 years ago, people didn't know what creative strategy was. But I do find like this very niche skill set um, and discipline is something that I think I want to go back to at some point in time where it is really thinking, how can you shape and transform um, any sort of message or story um, through really the medium? Uh, you know, it's Marshall McLuhan, but it is like the medium. I don't think the medium is the message. I think the medium is very much part of the message, though. Mm-hmm. I think it it's, goes hand in hand. I think we still in advertising, we're a little bit behind where we do think it's just the content that matters and not the distribution. But I do think the format and the context of which things are developed, that's where the interesting thing, you know, will come. Like I do think in the metaverse, when it is built, you know, the intersection of gaming and entertainment and fashion and life is all one. Like even the way I'm talking about it is like so Karen and so like Boomer, everybody would crack up because nobody thinks about it that way. Nobody thinks about it. No one who's actually like in any of these worlds think about it as I'm playing a game and now I'm going to buy a shirt. Like I'm going to get a physical shirt from this thing. Like no, like it's just something bigger in a life that's so so much more interesting. So I'm very interested in, in and again, um, how directors tell stories in that space, you know, or I'm interested in how, you know, brands want to sell things in those space. Like I'm a little bit more interested in um, that. But again, it's very specific. It has to be with like the fusion of technology. And so that's a space that, you know, I'm hoping to think a little bit more about. And hopefully I'm going to drive myself in that direction. Having said that, anybody from Meta, I'm not quitting. So <laughs> stuck with me. I've been here for eight years. Oh, wow. Yeah, they still have me for a while, for sure. I find whatever you just said about like the creative strategy so interesting because I think, well, we're do, we do AVG, obviously. It's a, we work in a podcast medium, but I think now we're trying to tackle different ways of telling our story and everyone, everything has a different platform. And for me, like... I'm trying to, I, do, I used to work corporate social media and had to learn about storytelling through Instagram, Facebook, what, uh, whatnot, but I just find it really interesting to figure out like, what are, because I do believe that the different platforms, there are different ways to tell stories and you have to utilize the platforms in the right way to tell your story efficiently in the right, and, and just getting your message across. So I would love to pick your brain when you get to that point of like, what is the intersection like for, you know, fashion technology and gaming within storytelling? That's yeah, I'll probably have a lot of questions for you after this. Uh, it's very interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. But I do want to talk about your current role as the head of creative and design and partnership marketing at Facebook, now known as Meta. You've been there for, you just said, eight years reporting to the chief business officer. Obviously, we don't work in Meta. I, I just want to know what that means. Like, what is that? How would you describe your job and what's a day in the life of this role like? Yeah, I definitely do not report to the chief business officer. I report oh, okay. probably a couple steps down, but I do know her. Hi, Marnie. Um, but I do know her. I, I used to work with her very uh, closely on Instagram when she was the CEO then. But yeah, I mean, running a creative team for in-house marketing is a little bit different even from an agency, uh, w- which is really interesting. But it is a lot of looking at work. It is a lot about managing managers because I have managers on my team. It is about making sure whether or not we are responding to the business challenge at hand. And then also, again, I think the different dynamic from uh, developing creative at an agency is that 
the adherence and or the articulation of our own brand is very important when you are on the brand side. I could not overstate or understate that anymore. But, you know, again, when you work in an agency, you kind of have a little bit more leeway to play. Whereas when you work um, in-house and you're developing a creative, be that, you know, digital advertising, uh, and that can be any format from long form, short form video, all the way to banner advertising, um, to all the ways like experiential, we really have to always make sure the, the brand is at the heart and center of what we're trying to do. And I think that's very different. Having said that, um, it is like being a creative director. It is reviewing a lot of work. It is dealing with, you know, management issues, building the culture, a culture of safety and trust, um, pushing everybody to experiment again, because we do work at Meta and we have access to all these amazing products. Um, it's like, how can we push ourselves to use our products in really interesting ways so that when we're telling our stories, we're actually using, you know, the superpowers that we have here to tell those stories so we can get other people to actually be inspired and use them the same way. So I would say the long and the short, it's that. And honestly, it's a lot of email and a lot of meetings as well in COVID world. So that's also part part of the challenge. And a lot of it is also like aligning with a lot of our, my marketing peers and stakeholders, like the folks that actually own the business lines or the audiences and making sure again, the work is actually strategically aligned uh, to the business challenges that they have. So some of it's higher order and some of it's lower order, but it definitely is more of a mix. It's not always just purely creative, but a lot of it is, um, around marketing and, and strategy as well. And again, how do we map back the output and make sure it's delivering on what we're trying to do? Mm, got it. Thanks for explaining. Just so I clarify, because partnerships marketing, I feel like there it's, it's, it's pretty, I feel like meta is pretty big. So do you mind walking through like a typical like project just so yeah. I have a better idea what it, what it means? Yeah. The word partnerships in general. So partnerships would be like analogous to sales. It's like um, a big team and their job duh, is like to have um, to develop strategic partnerships with folks that use all of our platforms and services. And this is across all the meta products. So that's Instagram, Oculus, WhatsApp, et cetera, so on and so forth. So partnerships is a very confusing term and we're actually deprecating and figuring out what this means. The partnerships was a um, really big um, group of folks. All of them have different audiences. Like there's gamers in there, there's gaming developers, there's platform developers, there's faith and education leaders, um, there's creators. Like it's a lot of, it's a lot of folks that are not advertisers, big and small, and they're also not consumers, just like normal people using our platform for you know personal reasons. They're actually folks that use our um, platform for, I'll use the word commercial, it's the loosest way to, to describe it, but you know, if you're again a faith leader, like a religious leader, you might wanna use like Facebook mm. groups, right? Especially in COVID to connect with your congregation. So you're not exactly a normal user and you're not exactly you know, an advertiser, but like how can we build products so that we're really helping advance your cause. At the same time, how do, how do uh, we teach you? How do you use things that we're building for you? So it's a hodgepodge of many of the audience because we serve so many different segments of the world. And so my team um, actually supports a lot of those audiences, not all of them, because there's a ton. But again, we are kind of just like figuring out what's the right name to articulate this as our business gets more complex, we have more products. It's like probably not the most, at least externally, it's probably not clear enough but I would say that it's kind of in between you know it's kind of and we are the marketing for all those kind of audiences in between and so the creative is particularly for audiences so I work a ton on lately I've been like working a ton on gaming uh, streamers on our Facebook gaming platform and creators as well which is on um, 
like aspiring creators and a huge segmentation under that as well. Oh, wow. Thanks for explaining. Definitely painted a clearer picture for me. Oh yeah, no, it's complicated to, yeah, it's, it's complicated to everybody, including myself. <laughs> Dang. And I feel like when you're describing your job, I, I, you know, one thing we, we hear a lot from uh, whether entrepreneurs or people working in corporate, one of the hardest things that you're doing is managing teams and managing people. And, you know, um, obviously being in the pandemic for two years was not really not easy for everyone. But, you know, as someone in leadership now and how has the pandemic affected the way that you and your team has worked? It's actually very challenging. I started actually this job a year ago. Mm. So it's, again, really interesting to onboard. I think I've had the pleasure of like working at Facebook slash Meta for a long time at, as a company. Um, so it's probably more challenging for someone totally coming in uh, to Meta because you have to learn the Facebook culture in ways. So I definitely have an advantage there. Uh, most of my team is in the West Coast or in Asia. Um, and then definitely a lot of peers and colleagues and cross-functional partners are all over the world as well. So in one way, I was primed for it because my last job was also global. So I spent a lot of time on video conference, but now it's definitely accelerated quite a bit. Um, I, I feel like the challenges are around everything that people talk about. Burnout, there's a lot of pressure on folks, um, extreme amounts of pressure because you have work pressure. People just do feel like the desire to kind of be more on it. There's not as much respect for work-life balance from everybody. It's just not us. It's just because of the way that we're working and people have pressure of like parenting, taking care of, you know, elderly parents. There's a lot of social and cultural pressure. Like a lot of folks, especially, you know, I have very, very diverse team, which I'm very proud of, but everybody has, you know, very unique challenges. We went through George Floyd together. There's a lot of, you know, API hate. Um, people are getting COVID and getting sick. Like there's just a lot of outside pressure that is pushing in. And then there's work pressure as well. So there has been, I think, a lot of pressure and burnout. Um, and then for the creative process, that's like one of the biggest enemies besides like the fear of failure, mm -hmm. right? Like those two things are the worst. So it's been really, really challenging. And yet there's only so much you can do to mitigate all of these things because they're, they are really outside of our control. Um, so as a manager, it's been definitely very, very tough. Um, I've tried, I think, to make the space for at least my team to speak openly and honestly about challenges if they feel comfortable. Um, we've tried to make more time when possible. And I, even though this is a little bit the expense of building culture, I have even like tried to minimize meetings and work for the team. You know, I don't want to force a weekly for an hour just to spend the time together if I can give you 15 minutes back after we covered the essential housekeeping stuff I would rather you take that to chill because mm. for the creative mind you need that space you need that time to like process and I would rather you take that 15 minutes that we still have blocked off that nobody can you know book over to just like rest your mind rest your mind for a second you can get back to your email later but again our work suffers I think in these conditions and not physically being together also I think makes it, the work suffer a little bit as well. So I don't think there's any easy answers. It's just been very, I think it's challenging just as it is for everybody else. And I would say like probably the last thing is a lot of people also have a lot of guilt because again, you know, we're in first world. It's like kind of a first world problem. We all get to work at home. You know, we're not, you know, losing our jobs. Um, so I think there's a, a tremendous amount of guilt and gratitude that also is a lot of pressure for, for folks, at least on my team, because there's such like talented, smart, kind, socially um, and civically responsible people. Um, and I think all, all of that's just very tough for folks. Yeah. 
I appreciate how you're approaching this situation with your team. I mean, it's, I think one, like at the end of the day, I, I understand the guilt because I, I feel it too myself, but I also feel like at the end of the day, we're all human. We all have our own emotions and needs that we need to take care of. I worked in creative all my life too, but I think there's a level of understanding that I appreciate coming from you that like, in order for you to be creative, you have to have a level of rest and inspiration or room for inspiration. And it's really hard with burnout. It's another layer I think a lot of like, for example, designers or people who are working in this, in this department really have to face that I think a lot of people don't understand who don't work in creative that it is something that a lot of people go through. So I think having like someone like you that understands that creative mindset and what they need to heal is actually very needed. So thank you for walking through what you've been doing with your team. I feel like you know, as an outsider looking into Meta or Facebook, I have I have some friends that work there too, but a lot of my information about the company is coming through like the news. You know, I'm not an internal employee there. And, you know, as an outsider, we've seen that, you know, Meta has been going through a lot of changes and a lot of scrutiny too. So I'm just wondering like how that has also affected your work as someone inside the company. Interestingly enough, it hasn't necessarily affected me but i think it's because i believe in the people Mm. at this company i'm also like again i don't know what it is i was always born with like tunnel vision that's what everybody says me my husband and my daughter who's one we can just like focus really well and i think that's always again been a saving grace like terrible if the house is burning i wouldn't notice i would just be still emailing people um but i think really good um in terms of what i have to do like i know i'm there to do a specific job and that is what I'm focused on. Like we definitely, you know, we can chat about things that we can improve at work or what we wish, you know, could happen. But in the long term, I really believe in the people here. I believe in the goodness and the kindness and the intent that people have here, whether or not, again, that's expressed externally or not. I really do feel like, like, you know, cliche and trite, but, you know, time will look back and will be the judge. Um, I think it's very hard right now to be, you know, in the midst of stuff and then like, you know, not feel down, obviously, but that maybe you feel misunderstood. Like Pink song is all about nobody wants to be misunderstood. But having said that, I think you can't help that. You know what I mean? You can't help, you know, what people don't know. And I definitely like also think a lot of uh, the criticisms in general are about technology in general. And again, I think it is like, really laser focusing on something and can only think about like one parallel you guys might be too young for this but in the 1990s when they were really talking about factories and the well-being of people working in factories nike took the biggest reputational hit um at that time right when every manufacturer was doing the same thing and unfortunately because of the the size and stature and, and so on and whatnot the reputation of nike i think that was a really big challenge and hurdle for them to come through so i really do think again try it as it is i think time will tell i think the people who want to use our things and and find value be that entertainment or utility um they'll continue to use it and again time will tell i also will say this last thing and I'm probably not even supposed to say this much about it but what we also feel is very uniquely american it's not actually global and that is also a very interesting thing mm. it's like i you know people in asia are still very very they love they love a lot of the brands that we have people do love it they find use and utility um in them as well so again it's very uniquely i would say american and perhaps in some parts of western europe but i would not say that uh what we hear now here is definitely like a global or universal perception of what we're bringing to the table. 
Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's good to hear that from someone um, uh, at your level inside the company and with your international perspective too. You're very right. It's uh, I think sometimes when some of us, you know, if some of our listeners are working in corporate and what we're hearing is our friends that are at you know within the companies, that's one perspective and one point of view. It's not kind of the totality. Um, no, yeah. my dad's still proud. Yeah, <laughs> my dad is like, yeah. You know, I mean, that's when you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's when you know that it's not hack. He's still, you know, and he's still in Hong Kong. So he's like, yeah, man. My daughter works at Meta. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's all, all, always my my real, real. You know, because yeah. as you know, my parents may not be traditional in many ways, but they're traditional in the fact that they do not hold back yes. about what they think about your life. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is very true. Speaking of kind of that 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 cultural perspective, um, throughout your career, you've had extensive experience in a lot of different roles and companies, um, and we're wondering as an Asian female. Have you experienced situations where you had to deal with, um, you know, being stereotyped, being overlooked for certain roles, uh, being treated differently, anything within that realm? Um, and if you can think about an example of maybe early on in your career where you may have sensed that, and then also now as a leader in a large company, um, I think our listeners would love to hear just, you know, to kind of feel heard and understood themselves and then just out of interest too, if, if, we're, if we have non-Asian female listeners. Yeah. It's uh, really interesting. I remember in an agency, I'm actually still friends with this boss, but he did call me an Asian bookend. Mm. So we we're sitting in a long strip of desks at the time, open plan. It was me and someone who did CRM. She was, you know, an older lady that sat there and he, he called us Asian bookends. And I was like, what? I, like, I didn't super understand what was happening because like I said, I think I came from a place where like this ne- never really happened to me, at least in my adult life. And again, living, I came straight off from coming to Hong, from Hong Kong, where I was the majority, not the minority. So I was just very surprised. And I wouldn't say that it necessarily, I can't say that I know that there was an impact in my career trajectory, um, because he obviously is expressing probably 10% of what he really thinks mm. of me in that mm-hmm. comment. But that was something that still sticks to my mind. I still kind of hold against him he is from a different place not from the United States I'm not giving him leeway but I just I think from where he comes from that might have been a little bit more acceptable um and I do remember him also saying something like he was giving um holiday gifts and he said oh yeah you're Chinese like you like money something Mm. like that Uh, and I was like what the fuck like I was like what the fuck and again it's really interesting like I haven't really thought back about whether or not it's affected my career opportunity because sometimes like you don't know what you don't know Mm. you know I did again I did well under him I learned a lot from him um even though much to be desired in the way he communicates and probably his you know subtle racism um however having said that I I did thrive could I have have thrived more if I looked more like him maybe Mm. but I don't know if I don't know if that's the case um Definitely at, you know, another agency, I was mistaken uh, for a friend um, as well, Christy. Actually, we laugh about that all the time. She's very slender. I'm a little bit broader. Slender. She's a little bit darker than me. You know, I had bangs and a bob. She had long hair with no bangs. So there's just like no way. You know what I mean? Like there's no way. And people would always be like, hey, Christy, are you coming to this meeting? I'm like, no jerk. Yeah. That's not my name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Christy here. Um, and even again, in one of the other agencies, we had a joke and again, this is like 15 years ago, probably when people really understood how to express themselves a little bit more, but people would be like, Hey, for this, I don't know, everybody's dropping off, um, some cash for, you know, a shared gift. And 
It's like, you know, drop it off on Leslie's table. Everybody had dropped it off on my table. And she was really angry. She was also Canadian and wrote um, a sheet, how to tell us apart, and put me, her, and then our friend Linda Yang. And we crack up about it all the time where she goes, Kay, bangs, Bob, wears a tunic all the time and running shoes. Me, five foot eight, like blah, 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 long hair. And then Linda, small, wears heels, Korean. Like she like literally spelled it out and she stuffed it in everybody's mailbox. Mm. And yeah, it was great. It was like aggressive, aggressive. And I like loved it. Mm. I loved it. I just thought like I'm very inspired even just talking about it. But like, you know, again, that was like 15 years ago. And I think she really shamed some people, mm. um, particularly because it was a very diverse uh, place that we were working at. So there's kind of end in New York. So kind of like no excuse. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely felt those like those have been definitely like even in my eyes more, I hate to say it, minor. I'm sure that they led to a bigger perception of who I was and my opportunity. But I would say that you know, the things that are bigger um, that have actually affected my financial prospects and the opportunity has been people not putting my picture in the right place in the org chart. Mm. Maybe again, mixing me up for someone else, you know, in let's say a performance uh, review. And that, that definitely begs the question, do you actually know my impact? Mm. Or are you assuming a stereotypical way that I do well because again it was like a very positive outcome but it does like if you're mixing me up with someone do you actually know who's doing the work right. and so that again makes me question whether or not attribution is correct um so again there's a lot of things like that has happened i've had some people mention to me that you know i was invited to a, a very senior spokesperson thing because for diversity mm. i've been told that um which just made me full out angry and then i've definitely um also been characterized as like quiet and keep my head down and do my work which I find shocking because I was like all right well I've known you for like six years and I would many things hardworking, yes yes stereotypical yes good pretty good math yes but quiet I kind of feel like it's almost insulting because I'm so off you know from that that it's like you really do not see me at all you do not see me my interaction with you does not make an impact in you Nothing. And again, this is coming, you know, from a fairly senior person. So it does, again, I can't say pointedly um, that it's it's limited my, you know, prospects, but it does make me question, like, if if I would be a different place if I wasn't, um, if I had, you know, encountered some of this as well. Yeah. I mean, I like your story that you shared um, about your, your coworker who kind of in a very aggressive way, you know, put messages in people's in people's mailboxes. Because to your point, it's oftentimes um, if if you don't say something is wrong or that you're offended, people may not understand and may not know, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like maybe not. We don't necessarily fault that person because maybe it's what they were around or whatnot. But I think that's a good lesson for our listeners to take away is um, to speak up and to and to make it known that it's not okay. Um, but some of those other stories that you shared, yeah, especially later in your career, to be to be mixed up with people. And even if, if the stereotypes are positive, that does affect your psyche and like, am I being seen? Am I being understood? Mm-hmm. Um, in that perspective, do you have any kind of tips for, for our listeners who are Asian and female and in the workforce? Um, I guess like what words, what words would you want to share with them on how to maybe cope with that? I mean, I'm definitely the wrong person because I'm definitely like 
direct. I've always gotten mm. probably comments on being too direct is like positive and negative. I have just said, I have called it out in a lot of cases. Um, and I want to say like, it's not everyone, right? Because I had an amazing boss who I will call out, Tom Brown. <laughs> amazing person who is incredibly empathetic and understanding of the unique challenges particularly Asian women face. Uh, definitely, you know, women of color, but definitely he was very open to learning. Um, so anything that I've come to him with like, hey, I'm going to ask you for a promotion and you're not going to like it because research shows. I actually got this from Cheryl's number. Research shows that every time an Asian woman asks for something, they're actually penalized a little bit more than anybody else. So I actually just lay out the research in a really factual way. Um, I even send links of the research. I'm like, hey, here's some research here from Harvard Business Review. And I, I just spell out what the bias is so that they can be aware of it. Um, but to your point, I think this is such an important point. I think assuming good intent is really critical because I don't think you can change someone's mind by just like screaming, you're racist. You know what I mean? Like that just like doesn't work that way because sometimes the intent is not there. It is ignorance. And I mean that in large eyes and like they hadn't had exposure, didn't even know that they've absorbed or been socialized with a sort of bias that they weren't aware of. So I think it is important to correct it. But I, I do think you got to be directed and like there's no room for interpretation. You just got to be like, hey, like that bothered me or... Hey, women, Asian women typically get stereotyped like that. And you just got to say it. The only thing I will say, it's very challenging if the dynamic isn't correct. Like as if it's someone who's way superior to you, of course, that's where the challenge is going to come. If it's someone like, again, a little bit more green, it's easier to say it to them. Mm. So I say all of this with acknowledgement that context really matters. But I do think as much as possible, we should say it. And we should push other people to say it like, the last story I'm going to share in this long-winded um, response is recently we we're working with a service provider. I'm not going to say what kind, but she had, we were, you know, just slightly catching up on, on my child before we're getting to the meat of our, our meeting. And, you know, it's with my husband. We're doing some planning on some stuff. And she said, oh yeah, you're going to be like the total opposite of the stereotype. You know, you're not going to push your girl to be good at math and to be hardworking. She said a bunch of shit. And my husband was like, what the fuck? And he's a white man, right? So he's like, what the fuck? He's like, this is someone we pay to help us do specific things. And she's literally just yelling out a stereotype. It was not like ill intention. I think she's trying to re like trying to rewind it back after. But he was sufficiently uh, disturbed by it that he did address it directly. Mm -hmm. So he wrote her an email outside of me and then told me after. He said, I, I felt really bothered by it. And I felt really happy about it because I felt like he was standing up for us because sometimes it doesn't matter if you're the victim telling the person not to do mm. what I'm telling you to do. It has to be like from within, if you say, he's right. a white man, to clarify. White man, maybe tell white lady, no bueno. You know, like not good. This is why it's not good. This is not the behavior we expect. But at the same time, we both don't want to like fire this person. I want to make sure that she understands and she's learning from this um, as well. But five years ago, I probably would have been like, cannot work with this person. Whereas I think now I'm a little bit older, I realize that's probably not the best way to come about change and like force people in a defensive position where they'll double down on their position versus again, mm. maybe it's an opportunity to say, hey, dude, that's not kosher at all. And then on my side, I was very proud that my husband did it because I said to him, ultimately, our child who's biracial, she's going to be identified as Chinese and she's going to face a lot of this mm. shit so you should have more skin in the game even if you don't because of me I'm my own person but 
you know, hopefully again, if there's more people like him to help again, own, speak to own, uh, maybe we'll see some progress as well. Wow. Thanks for um, sharing that story. Um, And sorry, I'm still processing that. Yeah. That, ooh. I know. She said like good at math. I'm like, I am good at math, but not because of the stereotype. Right, Mm -hmm. right. It's because I went to Kumon. (laughs) I did go to Kumon. And I I am very good at fractions. I did not make it past calculus, but yeah. But it was very annoying. I'm like, yeah, it's annoying to even like have that perception that I would or would not be a tiger mom. Yeah, yeah. Like, too personal. I, I like your your ending kind of like messages, you know, like have have empathy and try to see from their perspective, but also be firm and to be mm-hmm. direct. So I think that's a really good takeaway for how to handle these types of situations. Yeah. Because sometimes again, you know, like people also absorb shit differently. Like if you kind of beat yeah. around the bush, like, hey, you know that thing you said, like, you know, might have not been appropriate. My wife might have been hurt. Like, she's gonna be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like, you just gotta be like, hey, what you said when you referred to my daughter and my wife's parenting style was very inappropriate and really played back to stereotypes about Asians. It was not mm-hmm. like appropriate for someone who, you know, we're hiring. I, I like that is yeah. great because again, there's no room right. for interpretation. That's and true. she was very, very apologetic and obviously very nervous, um, you know, that we're gonna pull back. But I mean, my point is not mm-hmm. to ruin people's mm-hmm. life, you know, especially in a, like a personal interaction. like. I'm just hoping that now she won't do that to anybody else and she'll be a little bit more thoughtful about how she uses her words and how they can impact other people. that's a good way to approach it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know the age-old saying, work smarter, not harder? Having the right tools makes it easier to work more effectively, and when it comes to digital media, you need to try Issue. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute online content, from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks, brochures, and more. From one PDF, Issue will transform your hard work into easy-to-share assets optimized for every platform. No more manually reformatting everything, saving you tons of time. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use, like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. It helps creators, marketers, designers, and anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And you can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free, or if you sign up for a premium account, you will get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use promo code ABG. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use promo code ABG at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with promo code ABG. Um, Kay, we know you actually hold a lot of different hats. You know, we walked through your your position at Facebook. We also heard your daughter's voice earlier. I thought it was really cute. <laughs> but you're a mom. And, you know, one of our co-hosts, she's not here, Helen. She's a new mom. She's about to enter the world of balancing work, family, and life, and herself. Um, and we do have a lot of listeners that, you know, also are parents themselves. Do you mind sharing with us about your, your kids and how you balance work with your motherhood? 
I, to be honest with you, again, probably not a satisfactory answer whatsoever, but I'm very privileged to have the world's best, best childcare, like nanny in the world, Ivy. Um, we're lucky we found her. And I think that is, again, like a little bit of the privilege that, you know, we could afford to find care. We really chose a nanny because of co- we had her during COVID. It's been very difficult to like figure out, like, how can I get consistent childcare without nurseries opening and closing? So, sorry, I felt like, I always feel like a pang of like classism when I say that I have a nanny. So I'm like trying to like reel back a little bit, but we're very, very lucky that we're able, I think, to have such great childcare um, for my daughter. Um, We're lucky. This is the upside of COVID in my personal circumstance where had I been working like a normal person, I would have been in the office and I wouldn't have seen her as much. Um, And my husband's also a freelancer. So I think we've really just been able to manage possibly a little bit more than other um, parents. Um, And we're also lucky that she's young because I think had she been in school and we had to deal with Zoom and her classes would have been a nightmare. But, you know, she was zero to one. She just turned one a couple months ago. Um, Yeah. So, again, I wish I said it has been – it's definitely a challenge, but I wouldn't say that I've had as many um, challenges transitioning because I have all the right support Mm -hmm. in place. You know, even in the times where, let's say Ivy has to go on on uh, vacation, his parents come in and fly in to take care of her. So, like, I just, I am the luckiest person in the world in terms of career opportunities, having my personal and professional network support me in all of my big life uh, things. And so, yeah, I think that, and I will say, I also probably learned from my mom. I am not a tiger mom. Um, that's partially because I'm tired. I don't have time, you know, and oh my God, to discipline this child is like so much, so much. So I feel like I'm probably like less anxious about some things I would have been even five years ago. You know, I I just turned 43. I think if I was like even 35, I'd probably be like on her like all the time and like, no, no, yes, no. Whereas like no TV, uh, no processed food. Whereas now I'm like, have a cheese string, you know, like let's watch Peppa Pig for four minutes. Um, So I do think like possibly like age um, helps and also because I have a, oddly enough, because I have my plate is so full with work, you just learn to Mm. prioritize in a different way where you're just not going to stress about the things that Mm. you have less control over. Um, And so it, yeah. I would just say I'm just very, very lucky. This is not by any trick. I think it's part personality as in like personality, life stage as an age. Um, and then also just in the COVID pandemic, a lot of like lessons I've learned about like letting go of stuff. So it has not been as hard as I think it is normally for folks with mm-hmm. different challenges, but like, you know, don't have access to childcare and great benefits and that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. What tips do you have for our listeners who are balancing motherhood and work? Honestly, the best tip I've ever had is, so I had my child through surrogacy. Um, so when we picked her up in Houston, in the pandemic, by the way, um, when we picked her up, we were both nervous. So it was great in a way. The surrogacy kind of like leveled things off. Like there was not no perception of natural mm-hmm. instinct for me as a mom because I held her and, you know, I had her in my, had her myself. Um, so when we got to the airport, I made my husband change her diaper in public. Really, it was because I didn't know how to change her diaper and I was freaking out because we left like seven days after, but I made him do it. And I didn't realize that that one gesture of making him do it has leveled a lot of things out. As in now, because what happens, you get in this thing where if the mom always does it, 
then the dad, again, if you're in a cisgender, you know, heterosexual relationship, will say, but you've always done it so you can do it. Mm. Right? Or the changing room is only in the women's place you do it. That has changed the game for us from the very beginning. He changes the diaper when we go out. And he, I would say, he takes like 65% of the childcare, like the actual execution of childcare. Like waking up, making her breakfast, um, making sure, again, he's covering when I have late night calls and work. Um, but it is like, again, if you're in this particular relationship, is having really serious conversations even before about what's possible and what's not possible in terms of like what you can give and what, what are your, both of your strengths and what do you put mm. towards raising this kid. Mine is definitely operational. His is definitely executional. So we always crack, crack up. I'm always like, I'm the brains. He's the, um, what do you call it? Brains, mm. brawn. And now we joke, my child is the beauty. Oh. <laughs> she probably cute. me because we think she's very cute, yeah. you know, or whatever. But we're always like, I manage all the stuff that requires logistics. He actually yeah, does yeah. the thing. So like I will make the grocery list. He will actually buy it and then she gets to eat it. So we've kind of like brought all of our yeah. skill sets to the table. But I think that's the biggest tip is making sure that you have, if you are in the same circumstance, making sure that your partner does shit and do not accept less. And I mean it because that mm. affects your kids. Like my daughter will grow up seeing her, her dad cooking clean. Sorry, Tony. He's a great husband. Cooking clean, but she will never ever think that that's what moms do, you know? And she will see that her mom, you know, works and that there's no such thing as these traditional roles and we don't get stuck in this. So I think that, again, it mainly came out of fear, but it's been the, mm. that one moment I think has could have mm. gone two ways. Like I could have ended up like just taking on so much more of the childcare, but, you know, obviously he's a good person too and he's very progressive. So. I think that helps, but even so, I think it's we always have to level set in terms of expectations of who's taking on what, and I just don't accept any less than half equal, if not him taking yeah. more. But yes, equal yeah. or you more, but no possibility of going more my way. Yeah, <laughs> I liked I your th that was really cute. The breakdown of brains, uh, brawn, and beauty. <laughs> but one of the biggest things I took from your story was yeah, just to communicate. I think that that is um, that maybe sometimes if it's not talked about beforehand, our natural default is to fall into maybe the I the stereotypical roles, or or there might be a misunderstanding of who's doing what. So I think regardless of whether it's uh, motherhood in a family or working at a company with friends or whatnot, that is a that's a great lesson to take away. To close us out, um, what is one piece of advice, Kay, that you've been given, um, whether that's in career, friendships, life, or anything, that you always go back to? Oh, my God. I love, well, there's two. One for my mom and one for my hygienist, Elena. <laughs> that's where she's dental. I'm going to do it. I've gotten her for 15 years because she great, gives great advice. One is for my mom, which is the most profound one, is burn it down. She always says, burn the bridge. And I, I like, it's such, so counterintuitive. Everybody's like, keep the bridge. Like, don't burn the bridge. Like, you leave a job. Don't burn it down. My mom was like, burn mm. the bridge. Whenever I've asked her for critical things where I'm like, oh, I want to make another decision, but it will really ruin this relationship and this favor. She always said, who cares? Burn it. Because then you have no, no choice but mm. to move forward. Mm. And that to me is so profound in jobs in boyfriends and relationships in life. Yes. Don't look back because you got to force yourself to look forward. And that to me, coming from my mom, who majority of her, you know, professional life was a housewife, has been so 
profound, helpful, and simple um, that it has, you know, in hard times when I come to like decisions where I'm like, oh shit, I don't, you know, I want to hang on a little bit. Um, I've learned a really, I think, deep lesson about not, not mm. hanging on. And then the other thing that my dental hygienist said, I just went to her yesterday, so it's really fresh in my mind because I told her, like, remember 15 years ago you told me this, is sometimes you got to get rid of stuff in your room before you can let anything else mm. in. And that is also true. Like, a lot of times we're told, like, conventional wisdom, keep the job until you find mm. another job. Or, you know, don't take too many risks. And she says sometimes you actually have to get rid of that thing to find something else. And she had said that I had quit a job without having another job and something else came up right after. And it was like the best thing. And that led me actually to Mm -hmm. Facebook. So those two things have been, again, very simple, very profound, but have had huge lasting impact in the way I approach things and approach hard decisions. Thank you for sharing that. I love that your mom and your dental hygienist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know Elena she's amazing she's the most amazing woman ever redheaded um, lady has a very cute Russian accent she teaches me so much about life like she'll be like cleaning my teeth and giving me like nuggets of wisdom about how to do life I'm like why yeah. like I'm obsessed with her but the, the through line of both of those messages is you know to move forward mm-hmm. or that sometimes playing it safe is not going to help, right? And so mm-hmm. to have confidence and push forward. So I really I really like that piece of advice. Yeah. And I think that hearing that in this particular time of mm-hmm. the world and just everything that's been happening with with people, I think having that firm and, and a hopeful, optimistic attitude to be able to, to do that is, um, is a great message to leave us with. So thank you so much, Kay, for being here with us today. We loved hearing about your work, your life, um, you know, your, your, your child and your husband that we saw come in and, <laughs> and help us with uh, some of the tech setup. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you or follow you if, there's a, if, if you'd like to be contacted or... Okay, I definitely don't want to be contacted because everybody asks me if they can be verified. No, I was oh, kidding. Maybe I should but you can follow me <laughs> on Instagram at uh, Supreme, K-A-Y-H-S-U-P-R-E-M-E. Um, and that's where you can find me. But I can't verify you guys. <laughs> no way. No way. So yes, go ahead and uh, check Kay out. And if you have maybe any questions or, or whatnot, but don't hit her up for verification because she can't help you with that. <laughs> if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonated with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. And if you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube, where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called Dear ABG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is at Asian Boss Girl. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree in our link in bio and click on shoutouts. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. Thanks again, Kay, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Bye! Bye.